to be dieting or to be trying to achieve some body that's not natural for you, well, then what do you do? Do you just leave it? I mean, that's not really the answer, but thinking about, and I think you alluded to this, behaviors, right? So physical activity is important. Doing it in a way that makes you feel good, doing it in a way that respects your body, you're not injuring yourself. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday and happy long weekend if you are in Canada. Has anyone else had a quarantine birthday? When this crazy quarantine situation began, Eric and I were out for a walk and we were debating about how long the social distancing measures would last. We were debating back and forth about how much of the summer we would get to enjoy out in Toronto, how much of his season he might play, and it was all speculation. We still don't fully have those answers, although I think we have a better picture of what's going on. I said to him, I just hope I'm not in quarantine for my birthday. That would be crazy. Well, fast forward nine weeks and here we are. I'm officially celebrating a quarantine birthday. And it's unbelievable how much my perspective has changed about that. I'm actually perfectly content with it. We make a lot of assumptions about the unknown and how things won't be as good if they can't be the way that they are now. But in reality, most of the time, we're just not opening our minds to how wonderful things can be, even though they're different. We resist change so much, but different doesn't have to mean worse. For me, a quarantine birthday means that we don't have to worry about whether Eric's traveling for my birthday, and we don't have to worry about working around his training schedule. We can spend a whole weekend together celebrating, doing all of our favorite things. And I didn't realize until it was happening that that's not really something we've ever been able to do before. Quarantine means no pressure to be anywhere. Quarantine has completely taken away the pressure of deciding where you're going to be, who you're going to see, because there's only one option. And I didn't realize how comfortable I would become with that, but I'm good with it. Quarantine means so many more chill times and cuddles. It means being inventive with the meals that we're making. It means Eric cooking me dinner for my birthday, which is definitely new this year. It's meant so many awesome things and I'm really grateful because I'm happy. My husband is absolutely wonderful and has made me feel so special already. And I don't know, I just feel like I can't really ask for anything more than that. So it's been a very cool, reflective birthday for me. Since I'm releasing a podcast episode on my birthday, it obviously had to be a very special one. And this episode with Dr. Amrita is just that. Back in the winter, All Day Fit had an event called Finding Food Freedom, where we invited Dr. Amrita, a psychologist here in Toronto, in to talk with us about eating disorders, disordered eating, and how we can all find more food freedom. The conversation and the questions and the engagement and the connection that happened during that event were beautiful. 
And I knew that I wanted to have Dr. Amrita on the podcast because her messages and the way that she talks about these issues is so relatable, so accessible, and I think so important for everyone to hear on how do you feel. I believe this is such an important and such a special topic. So that's really why I chose to release this episode on this special day, my 27th birthday. Dr. Amrita Guy is a registered clinical psychologist in Ontario with over 13 years of experience providing evidence-based intervention and assessment to adults. She has lots of experience working with a range of issues, including disordered eating and body image, perfectionism, anxiety, relationships, depressed mood, sleep, and grief. Dr. Amrita works with clients in a collaborative, empathetic, and non-judgmental manner, which you 100% hear in the way that she speaks about all of these issues in this episode. It was such a treat to get to talk to Dr. Amrita again, and I'm really hoping that you guys love this episode just as much as I do. Hi, Dr. Amrita. Welcome to the How Do You Feel podcast. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Casey. This is a little throwback to the event that we did. I guess it was back in February, January or February. So. Yeah, it was a little while ago. Yeah, but we had a we did an event that All Day Fit put on called Finding Food Freedom. And we got to talk about a lot of the concepts that we're going to talk about on the podcast today. Since you had so many awesome messages to share, I just really wanted to have you on the show so that we could share those things with all the listeners. We had some great conversations. So yeah, I think, I think this is great. So if people have listened to the podcast, they know that I suffered from an eating disorder for about seven years and then a lot of subsequent phases of disordered eating. And for that period of time, I kept what was going on a secret. Um, I didn't really let anyone in and I didn't really seek help for that, which looking back, of course, I wish that I had. It just wasn't something that I was comfortable sharing with people in my life or, um, you know, seeking professional help for. It's interesting because since I've been talking about it more, the personal growth that has come from talking about it and having these conversations has been massive. And also my eyes have been open so much to how many people are standing up and saying, Hey, me too. I've suffered from these things as well. I've struggled with a lot of the same issues and thoughts. And I just think it's a bigger issue than a lot of us in the fitness industry know. And I think it's still very much not talked about enough. So Before we really launch in, can you tell us what disordered eating is versus an eating disorder? It's sort of a spectrum, but how do we differentiate between those two things? Sure. So so disordered eating, I think as a term, is a bit of a like an umbrella term. So it can refer to a lot of different behaviors, thoughts, or or also emotions. And people who have eating disorders, which you know I can say more about, will definitely have disordered eating behaviors, thoughts, or emotions in the picture. Not everyone who has some of those disordered elements necessarily has an eating disorder. So they really range in terms of frequency and intensity and how much they actually impact someone's life. So some examples could be things like, for instance, restricting your eating in a way that may actually not be necessary. Typically, in an inflexible kind of way. And similarly, activity can start to become disordered if it's being done in a way that's exclusively tied to weight and shape control. And 
both of those things through eating and activity oftentimes become really paired with feeling guilty or feeling anxious, feeling a lot of threat involved in these things. That's when you start to know that these are disordered behaviors or disordered thought patterns. When they start to kind of cross the line, as I said before, and that, you know, they're happening all day long, they lead to preoccupations. A lot of people describe that they're maybe planning their whole day, thinking about what are they going to eat or not eat, or how are they going to make up for it? They might have sort of an internal count going on in the back of their heads. You know, that can start to then become sort of a full-blown eating disorder. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I'm so glad that you brought up that your relationship with exercise and movement can also be disordered. And those two things, at least in my world, in the fitness world, they do often go hand in hand. And we have to think about like, what is our relationship to movement and exercise as well? And are we using them exclusively as a way to control the way that our body looks or the size of our bodies? Um, so definitely an important thing to reflect on as well. At many points when I was engaged in disordered eating behaviors, I was very much in denial about them and I had trouble Mm. seeing them for what they were. In my mind, I was labeling them as healthy. I was being really diligent about being healthy is what I thought. And I I was really in denial about the harmful effects that some of the behaviors I was engaging in were having on both my physical and mental health, really. Right, right. Can you help us understand like what some of the behaviors that our society sort of is quick to label as healthy are, but that actually can be disordered? Definitely. So I think your experience is actually very similar to to, to a lot of people's um, experiences. When I meet with someone who, let's say, is struggling with a full-blown eating disorder, you know, these are really serious, they're complex mental health issues that affect not just how you feel, but your physiology. Um, Once they're at that point, usually as we're talking about their history, um, it's not the case that they woke up and this just all came on overnight. So a lot of times people realize that there may have been really subtle ways in which some of these behaviors presented themselves, and it may not even have felt bad initially. And I think that's what maybe makes it so difficult sometimes for people to either see that there's something that's going on that's disordered, or if it does feel bad, there are all kinds of buffers that can come up in the way of reinforcement from other people, reinforcement in social media. So for example, someone, let's say, posts a photo of their lunch and they had some really fresh vegetables and maybe a piece of fish, maybe some avocado on the side. I mean, there's nothing about that meal that necessarily looks like it's a problem, right? It's not like you're showing one stalk of celery and a glass of water or something, which would be very clearly restrictive. But what people don't see behind that is let's say that person has sort of planned that meal. And if they deviated that from that at all, so if they added in a little bit of rice or some white potatoes into that, they would actually feel fear. Right, that they may have a really concrete plan around what they're going to avoid or the activity that they're going to do later that day. Um, So, you don't see any of these things behind the image. You don't see the emotions, you don't see the fear or the guilt that becomes tied with, let's say, a pretty strict sense of it's okay if I eat these foods and anything outside of this is unsafe, for Mm -hmm. example. Yeah, so labeling certain things as good and bad is probably one way to help you kind of decide if 
some behaviors potentially are disordered? The reality is, I think you hear, I hear so often people talking about good and bad foods. And Mm -hmm. I do think those terms can really be a problem because really what's good and bad just depends on context. So I think a pairing of that with a sense of the sense of safety and unsafe, even though people may not use those labels themselves, but if they feel like if I were to you know, have this for breakfast. And right now, current dieting trends um, make people feel really afraid of grains, for example. So if I were to have a piece of toast, I would feel fear. I would feel like that's not okay for me, guilt. So those emotions that pop up in terms of those dichotomizations are, are really, can really be a risk factor for the development of a full-blown eating disorder. Yeah, that makes total sense. So really thinking about how do foods that maybe deviate away from the way that I see as healthy eating, how do those foods, if I were to eat them, how does that make me feel? Do I have an emotional response? Do I have to make up for it in some way that I'm behaving later? Um, It sounds like those are all really good questions to ask yourself. Would you agree? Absolutely. And and I like the way how how you phrase that, because I think you can really hear sort of a preoccupation that might occur then. So people will describe mm-hmm. to me at early stages, for example, they're going to going out to eat. They've never been to the restaurant before. They might feel that they have to look at the menu beforehand so that they can plan the rest of their day, their day for instance, because they wouldn't feel like it was okay to sort of just eat what they desire, follow their hunger cues, that there really has to be this sense of planning so that they can take control or compensate accordingly. There definitely can be an emotional component or a desire for control that's associated with a lot of these disordered eating behaviors, but many of them are also very closely tied to body image. Can you explain for us why that is? Why do these feelings of having a negative body image often lead to disordered eating behaviors? Yeah, that's a great question, Casey. I think it's important to know that they are really quite intimately tied. And I think an important distinction to talk about would be sort of body dysfaction, kind of your your unfortunately typical phenomenon where most people actually do feel really dissatisfied with their bodies. If you were to go out and ask 100 people walking by, do you like everything about your body? Do you like how you look? And 99 of them would say, no, I wish this were different. And if that makes sense, given that what sort of the media portrayal of the ideal body image is for for both men and women, you know, it's not realistic for 99% of the population a far smaller number would have a little bit of a different experience. So if the average person, I don't know, tries on a pair of jeans and they're a bit snug, maybe they're out of the dryer, um, it doesn't feel great, right? But it may not affect the rest of that person's day. They may just kind of let that roll off their shoulder and move forward. For a smaller number of people, so maybe three to five of those people, they actually would probably feel profoundly guilty, their mood would be impacted, and they would likely change their behaviors the rest of the day. So so that concept is more than just this kind of normative discontent. That's what we call the typical body dissatisfaction that exists. This is called the overvaluation of weight and shape. I often use that term interchangeably with body image. Um, So really tying, it's not just that a person doesn't like how they look, it's that their sense of self-worth is tied really intimately to how they feel they're doing with respect to controlling their weight and shape. 
So we all really want to feel good about ourselves. That's how we're sort of built as, as humans. We're hardwired to sort of avoid feeling badly about ourselves. We avoid aversive emotions. And so if someone's self-worth is so wrapped up into how they feel they're doing with their weight and shape, then they're absolutely going to try to do things to feel like they're doing well in that domain. Yeah, that makes sense because that's the only choice they have, right? If all of your self-worth and value is wrapped up in the size of your body, then it feels like you have to do something to change it if it's not good enough. Exactly. And then what happens, you know, our, our beliefs and our emotions and our behaviors are all connected. So, you know, let's say that that's what that person believes and they start to engage in restriction or, you know, excessive activity or compensation. Those behaviors reinforce the importance then. Of, of that construct, right? Mm-hmm. It reinforces then, well, I better be doing this because you wouldn't do it otherwise. Yeah. Right? And, and those things are so praised. Like, yeah, that's such a good Society point. gives us so much praise also for doing those things. So it's not even just like reinforcement from within yourself. You start to get validation and reinforcement from everyone else in your life. Yes. And I mean, there are lots of examples of how eating disorders can onset if a person undergoes some sort of change in in their body shape or weight. So if someone, for example, um, I've had lots of clients who have dealt with an illness, a physical illness that's led them to lose some weight and they get so much praise and reinforcement from it. Um, And so, you know, it's complicated what causes an eating disorder, but that can sometimes be a starting point that they're getting this reinforcement and all of a sudden they're feeling better about themselves. This is why I think it's so important to really be careful about commenting on other people's weight because it's not a it's not a neutral piece of feedback to give someone definitely you never know how like much someone is holding on to that and how much that's affecting them and we just have to remember that a smaller body is not necessarily a healthier body and when we make assumptions like that i mean that's just so crazy you talk about someone being ill like not feeling well and not feeling healthy not feeling good becoming smaller and being praised for that somehow it's just so backwards there is a conflation between health and body size that i think exists within the narrative of, of health that's reported in the media and some medical professionals can reinforce that i've had a lot of clients go see their doctors and their doctors will say you you look healthy to me you know unintentionally not knowing perhaps an, enough about eating disorders but you're absolutely right like you don't know just by looking at someone whether or not they're well or unwell and i think an important thing to know about eating disorders is a lot there there can be a stereotypical view of what someone with an eating disorder looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, It's often believed this is usually someone who's pretty young, usually a woman, and that they're emaciated. And although that certainly can be how an eating disorder shows up, eating disorders can affect people of any age. They can affect men and women. uh, And most people who have an eating disorder are actually average weight or a little bit above average weight. I've heard stories about people who are in larger bodies that do have eating disorders seeking help and being turned away because it doesn't look like they fit the description for what an eating disorder, what we think of as an eating disorder. I mean, that's just devastating. So I think this is really something that we need to think hard about is like, what are the assumptions that we're making about someone? and how they're doing based on the way that their body looks. Absolutely. It's, it's, whenever I hear that, I, I, it's hard because 
I, I work with a lot of these people and they're looking to advocate for themselves. It's hard to seek out help when you have an eating disorder. Um, yeah. Most people <laughs> struggle for a period of time with some ambivalence around wanting to get help. And then the idea that someone is looking for that help and then gets feedback, well, you don't look sick enough is really hard. Um, the assessment of an eating disorder is really complicated. You really need to work with someone who has a lot of expertise so they know how to ask not just questions about, well, have you lost weight or what's your current weight right now, but to ask questions about rigidity, inflexibility around eating, binge eating, for instance. People's bodies don't react the same way to restriction. So you could have you know, 10 people following the identical diet plan and activity plan, and their bodies are all going to look different. That is such a good point. <laughs> That's so true, right? It's not, it's, I've seen that in the gym also, like everyone's bodies respond just so differently to things. And we have to understand that variability that is supposed to exist. You know, it makes sense when you give it more thought, but I think that most people feel like they should be able to pick their body size the same way mm -hmm. they pick their outfit or the same way they, they pick their haircut or something like that. Like, I think that's what's really reinforced that if you want to look this way and you follow this plan and you eat in this way, you'll just be able to do that. And the reality is our bodies have no interest in that. Yeah. So, so, you know, this is the thing, there's so much that's wrapped up into our genetics. And of course, other factors can impact the weight that we maintain, but not asking people about what they're going through and, and about their emotions and their mood and all of these really complex behaviors that can be subtle or not so subtle, I think is really misguided and unfortunately sustains some stigma that already exists, I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of eating disorders. Yeah, definitely. We do it all the time. Well, well not we, but it happens all the time where you look at someone and then you say, what are they doing? Because you just assume that if you do what they're doing, then you'll look like them. And I don't know why we're so fast to connect those dots. And, you know, it's another thing that really disappoints me when I see nutritionists and trainers doing this, like purposely marketing along those lines on social media that, you want to look like me, you want to, you know, right. do this like me, then engage in this one behavior. Right. That is one behavior within your genetic, like you have a certain genetic makeup. And then that is one small behavior in your life that may or may not contribute to whatever this result is that we're looking for. Like there's 1000 other things that are a part of your daily habits and the way you live your life and your emotional, well, you know, everything, right? So many right. factors that when we are so reductionist to take it to one thing and think that that is the reason that that person looks or can do what they can do or whatever. It's just, it's just so wrong. Like well, and it's wrong. It's, it's wrong. It's incorrect. It's out of line with sort of basic science. And it's also really shaming. It's not like I don't, I don't use a lot of social media because I find it sometimes hard actually to read people's comments saying, okay, how do I look like you? How do I get abs like you? What should I do? And you can almost hear this desperation in these yeah. comments because people are feeling like they're somehow feeling and people get moved away from what does it actually mean to be healthy? That having 
a certain muscle tone or having certain definition in muscles, that's actually not really what an indicator of health is. And people will ask me, okay, well, if it's not healthy to be dieting or to be trying to achieve some body that's not natural for you, well, then what do you do? Do you just leave it? I mean, that's not really the answer, but thinking about, and I think you alluded to this, behaviors, right? So physical activity is important. Doing it in a way that makes you feel good, doing it in a way that respects your body. You're not injuring yourself. You're doing it at a frequency that makes sense eating in a balanced way so that you're not setting yourself up to binge or to feel restrictive. You know, moderating drinking, um, not smoking, there are so many other behaviors that are part of a holistic sense of what it means to be healthy. But I think you're right, when people sort of really take this reductionist approach, they feel like this look is healthy, this look isn't. And then they feel shame if they're somehow not meeting that arbitrary standard. Yeah, for sure. They take it upon themselves and think there's something wrong with them. I must be doing it wrong. I must not have enough willpower. I must blah, 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 blah. And that's really sad. That's the reason I called this podcast, How Do You Feel? Because I believe that when you chase a feeling instead of chasing a look, that it reinforces the behaviors that actually move you towards health because you feel your best when you're healthy. And I just think that if we can lead with that first, I'm not saying that you can't care about the way that you look, but there's just so much more that we need to lead with in our lives and that we need to value way, way more than that before we start just arbitrarily chasing only a certain look. Right. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't know what your experience was, but I think a lot of people will say, even if let's say they got to that place where they were chasing that look and they got there, oftentimes mm-hmm. it's a moving target. You can always be thinner. You can always have more defined muscle. Like you can always sort of change something. So oftentimes people aren't actually feeling a stable sense of confidence yeah. in that way. It can be a really superficial sense of, okay, well, maybe right now, as long as I keep myself in this place and I follow this routine and I do all of these things and I never eat X, Y, or Z, then I'm okay with myself. That's not really confidence because it rests in contingency. There's this giant if in the middle of it. And so really being able to work towards, as you're saying, chasing the emotions that you actually want to feel that allow you to feel like, hey, I can be myself and work on accepting that. Yeah. Yeah. You can't find fulfillment in a certain body, like, you, yeah, like you're saying, something that will always be a moving target. But, and then also, we are so bad at, like we, we see ourselves in this crazy contorted view. We're staring at ourselves in the mirror and analyzing like little pieces. We don't see the bigger picture. And I'll give you an example of this. I recently went back into some of my old content, my old videos of me in the gym that I have from when I was first starting to be a trainer when I was in the midst of this eating disorder. And it creeped me out a little bit because I remember being in that body and what I saw, I didn't see good enough. Like good enough for me was thin. I was pretty much chasing being small. It wasn't good enough in that moment. I look back now and the body I see is so small that it couldn't possibly be healthy. Like I just have such a different image now being sort of like, like time has given me the distance to be able to see it. And it's really weird because when I was in that moment, it was still chasing smaller. It was still chasing leaner. Like it, it just still wasn't good enough. And I don't, I don't think it ever would have been because I was just so zeroed in on this one myopic 
thing. And that was getting smaller. It sounds like you, you're, it's like a really unique ability that you have to be able to have this perspective around what you were perceiving of yourself back then. Because clearly, I think what you're saying is that it was about being smaller, but it actually wasn't about that right? Mm -hmm. Because it was a moving target. There was never a place where you felt like I'm comfortable here. You know, eating disorders get tied up into what I call strategy. So, you know, we sort of have to figure out as we're navigating the world, like, what do we do to feel good about ourselves? What are some anchors that we hold on to? What are some underlying assumptions that we make about what it means to be, let's say, a good friend or to be good at our jobs? And, eating disorders can get tied up into this in terms of self-worth. So if it starts to feel like if I control my weight and shape, then I'm safe, then I'm okay. That's maybe what was going on. That's why it was sort of like at the time you weren't really necessarily seeing what you're seeing now. It, it never really felt satisfying because it was acting perhaps as this strategy, you know? And sure. the other thing is that you touched on this earlier, this idea that when you're looking at, let's say, a photo of yourself and you're not really seeing something accurately, there's a lot of research that suggests that people with disordered eating, the way that they visually perceive things is actually different than how someone else might perceive things. So if you look at a photo of yourself, or let's say there's a big group picture, you look at it and then someone, let's say, who is feeling really self-conscious about, I don't know, their, their arms or their abdomen or whatever it is, is going to look at themselves, zero in on that part of their body and really scrutinize what they're seeing. And when we do that, we're actually going against the way that our brain naturally wants to perceive information, which is from a very top-down approach. We make size inferences based on looking at an entire image and then looking at smaller parts. So this objectification of what does you know, my arm look like or what does my stomach look like right now, you're actually seeing a distorted image of yourself in a way that you wouldn't if you were looking at like a picture of furniture or something like that. Wow, that's fascinating. I've never heard that before, but it makes total sense based on what I experienced, for sure. We're touching on this a lot, but could you summarize for us the way that media, social media has an impact on the way that we see our bodies? There's so much that can be said about it. Let me think about it, a good way to summarize it. You know, I think that um, there's a really different role that social media can play in terms of this idea of what it means to be healthy. And if health starts to be associated with a certain look, right, with being fit and that looks like a certain body shape or body size or eating in a particular way that sort of healthy looks like cutting certain foods out, people start to really believe that there's truth in that because these things become reinforced. Mm -hmm. you know. It used to be the case, like in the, I was I went to high, sort of middle school and high school in the early and mid nineties, and back then when social media was sort of first emerging, there was disordered content that was available online, but it was very dark, literally. Like these websites would be dark and black and gray, and the content on it was clearly very disordered. There were images that were sort of in line with an ideal that was extremely unhealthy and very obviously unhealthy. So sort of emaciated bodies and that sort of thing and advice on how to do really horrible things to your body because restriction would sort of be the primary method of achieving that. Mm -hmm. So even though it would be obviously very concerning for someone to go look at that content, they would know, or it would be a lot more obvious that this is kind of something that's bad and having that insight can sometimes be helpful. 
today, you know, if I were to just sort of randomly go through Instagram, there would be probably a ton of accounts that would be giving some message about what it means to be healthy, whether it's about body image, whether it's about eating. And as I mentioned at the top of, of this podcast, you know, you don't know what's going on behind those pictures. And so all of this content that's being sort of framed as fitspo or, or healthy living is not that different from some of the darker images that are, you know, really very clearly disordered. And in my mind, the insidiousness with which this can really have an effect because people are thinking that they're looking at something that's healthy is almost as bad and if not worse, because people have no ability then to recognize I'm engaging with something that's maybe not healthy for me. Yeah, it's so mainstream and it's just so common. And so, and it even makes it that much harder to even at this point, I still struggle sometimes to talk to people about, hey, that's actually diet culture speaking to you. It's not an actual health advice. Like people are, are very resistant to that because it's so mainstream. They think that because it's widespread and normal that it can't be wrong or it can't be like Diet, although, I mean, you know, it's in the word culture that it's like so widespread, but, but it's just a hard thing to talk to people about because it's so normalized. Right, exactly. And, and I think that that's really key, that it feels like this is what's normal and you can't then create the same level of separation between yourself and something that maybe is, is more clearly outside of that range, right? So people develop a lot of difficulties separating themselves from that. So they look at content and then they immediately feel shame or feel bad about it. And I think what's also interesting is, you know, this content is not just showing up in platforms that are tied specifically to health or to fitness, you really like you could be looking at an account about travel or, you know, about um, really beauty or about lifestyle and this content will often show up. So it's so widespread that that contributes, I think, to the normalization of diet culture and the idea that we have to fix ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's also very interesting that many of the people that are drawn to professions such as nutrition and fitness are drawn because of their own preoccupation with these things and often disordered relationship with these things. I've heard many trainers and many nutritionists talk about this. So we see like this what we think of as the typical trainer like looking really fit and slender and we have to take a step back and think, is that what the profession is attracting because it's the norm? Because that's a person that looks accepted as a trainer versus the behaviors that they're engaging in and, you know, the lifestyle that they're living. Yeah, you know, that is a real phenomenon. There is a greater, there are more people in a lot of these fields and, and industries, including fitness, nutrition, culinary arts as well, that have disordered eating or histories of eating disorders. And a lot of that comes, I think, from the preoccupation that might onset. So if someone's preoccupied with these things, you know, they may develop an interest and that interest may not be initially or at first glance a problem necessarily, but it can start to intersect maybe with some of those disordered behaviors. And if that person doesn't have have an awareness that that's happening 
could be really harmful to their own well-being, but also now they're inadvertently potentially spreading content that is unhelpful to others. There are a lot of people, I think, in these industries who have awareness, perhaps, of how maybe disordered behaviors contributed to that interest, um, but still have interest in it and then use their platforms to, I think, destigmatize some of these things. And I think people who can do that, you know, are, are really courageous because they find a way to tie their wellness, I think, to the message that they want to also transmit. And that can be really a source of strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. Many of us grew up watching our moms go on and off of diets constantly or potentially watching our moms struggle with their body image, make comments. I think a lot of us can relate to that idea. Can you tell us why it's more likely that someone who watches their mom diet on and off for their whole life will engage eventually in dieting behaviors themselves or potentially disordered eating behaviors? Why, how does our, the way that we grew up and what we saw in childhood as far as eating then affect our behaviors as adults? A lot of things that we observe when we're kids will become either beliefs that we then hold later on. I mean, it's kids are really sponges in terms of picking up on habits and on beliefs that they sort of absorb around them. And so parents are primary attachment figures. As kids, kids really want to connect with their parents and want to get approval from their parents and are going to sort of pay really close attention to what does my mom value? What does my dad value? What's the overall message about ourselves, about others, and about the world. And these things are picked up in subtle ways. So sometimes people will say, you know, my father or mother never said to me that there was something wrong with my body, but they were always on a diet or they always made comments about how fat they looked in photos and how they needed to go on a diet or they were constantly on diets. So even if a child isn't getting feedback directly saying that there's something wrong with their body, although sometimes that happens and, and that's awful, certainly, they're picking up on the sense of this is important to my parent. This is important to them. And so this now becomes something that's important broadly, right, in life and broadly to me. And there isn't a one-to-one -one relationship between these things. Certainly not everyone who grows up in a home where that message is sort of transmitted will develop disordered eating, but certainly most people who do have disordered eating can recall someone in their lives or messaging in their home subtly or not so subtly emphasizing the importance of either looking a certain way, um, excessive importance on this idea of health that comes up quite a bit now. There's so much more information in the media about what's healthy and not healthy. And there can sometimes, I think we had some of these conversations at the event um, around how do you provide good messaging to kids without making them feel guilty about their eating. And, you know, I think it's sort of similar to what happens with social media. There can become this sense of normalization of, well, of course it makes sense to want to go on a diet before you go to a beach, for instance, before you go down south. That's what I grew up with. It's, of course, it's normal to comment on people's appearance. That's what my parents always, right? So it can kind of normalize the sense of this is how you operate in the world. And these are the elements that are important in terms of feeling good about yourself. Yeah, we have to be so careful. I don't have kids yet, but I know that I will have kids in the future. And I think a lot about the messaging like that I'm even bringing to my household right now and just making sure that the way that my husband and I talk about our bodies and food like that we are thinking about what are the messages that we're sharing with each other and that we're circulating in our household because I know that it is such a, a sensitive thing for kids and I, I will always make choices that 
um, I believe are healthy, but in the way that like, you know, make me feel good and, you know, they're educated choices. But at the same time, I never, ever want anyone, clients, myself, my husband, future kids to feel guilty for engaging in anything. Like that just makes the situation even worse, right? You can be reflective about the choices you made and the behaviors you engaged in and why. And I think that awareness and reflection is huge. Those are very important skills, but guilt is a step beyond what I think serves anyone. You know, the confidence that you have in that, I think it comes from probably you having a really intact sense of your own relationship with food and having worked on that and feeling really confident in that. Because actually, that's the most important thing when people ask me, you know, how do I make sure that in my wellness as I'm recovering from an eating disorder, how do I not transmit this to my child or to my nieces or nephews? And the first thing is really working on that relationship you have with food and with fitness yourself. And once you do that, it's actually quite unlikely that you'll inadvertently pass that messaging on if you're feeling like what does it mean to be healthy well that's tied really to behaviors to flexibility to balance I grew I was very fortunate I grew up in a household where there was really never any talk about diets or or appearance in that way and balanced behaviors were just part of the norm. So most foods were cooked at home. We ate out once in a while. There were no restrictions when we went out to eat. There's lots of balanced options that were available. We did activity as part of our extracurriculars. We picked sports that we liked. So I never actually had awareness of the idea that foods are good or bad or that you have to control your weight and shape. And I I can reflect that that was something that... um, was probably really a strength. And I'm really fortunate, I think, that my mom and dad didn't have that messaging. But a lot of people worry that if they don't somehow say something about this, their kids are going to end up, I don't know, eating candies all day or eating chocolates all day. And and really, they won't if they are eating in a balanced manner and feeling like their eating is never tied to guilt or shame. Mm -hmm. Some of the best, again, I'm not a parent, so I don't know from experience, but some of my favorite parenting advice that I've ever heard from others is if you want to instill something in your kids, a value, then you embody the value. Be the example for your kids and they will learn to emulate it. It's not done through words. It's not done through anything besides action and showing. And the more that you think a habit is important for your kids, like you do it and you emulate it because they learn by seeing, right? Absolutely. And then there's those subtleties that we've talked about before that if you embody whatever that value is, they'll notice the subtleties in line with that, right? It doesn't just become Um, words, right? For sure. Exactly. How do you help people in their journey to achieve food freedom? What kinds of things are you working with people on? The way that that I approach this, and, and I think a lot of my colleagues do, is we really think about the idea that the way that we feel, what we think, and what we do are always trying to be in alignment. Okay. So somebody comes in and they are describing um, that they're engaging in disordered eating, that they are pretty rigid around their eating, they might be restricting, maybe they're compensating, but they really want to feel a sense of stability and their confidence. They, They sort of have an awareness that what they're doing is a problem. They'll ask me, well, how do I start to believe that I should accept myself and that I don't have to fix myself and that, you know, the way I am is okay and I should strive for balance. How do you change that belief? And I think 
that changing behavior is so important. So in terms of finding food freedom, the first thing we do is really try to work collaboratively to allow this person to eat a range of foods, have balanced foods. Normalized eating refers to eating three meals a day, a couple of snacks at least, um, and including all sorts of foods within that and not having any kind of a dieting approach tied to that. That helps to eliminate binge eating. We work on eliminating any kind of compensation. Um, so that could be things like self-induced vomiting or activity that's done in a problematic way or laxative use. So we really focus on, on behaviors in the initial stages of, stages of the work. And when you start to do something differently and you start to be okay with it, well, that's when guilt starts to dissipate. If you feel like I don't have to make a correction for having eaten breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it starts to actually feel more okay to do that. Body image work is, is all part of this, and it kind of happens simultaneously, because if we think about what it means to have positive body image, you know, I think that there is this ideal, and it's great if some people can achieve a sense of self-love or a sense of loving their bodies. Not everyone gets to that place. And I think it's complicated. There's so many different factors that intersect with this idea of having body positivity. And it's unfortunately not realistic for everybody. But what is, is having a sense of acceptance and neutrality around body image, a sense that there is no contingency in my self-worth. I'm okay as I am. When I eat three meals a day and when I eat a couple of snacks and I'm moderately active, my body's going to settle in a place that's natural for it. Our body regulates our weight, it turns out. That's something that, again, is, is not that surprising if you think more deeply about it, but isn't necessarily the message we get in the media, right? So really feeling a sense of an ability to eat variety, to do activity in a normalized way that's not tied to this feeling of exclusively attending to shape and weight control and eliminating guilt and compensation around food. I love that you talk about how we don't all have to be radically in love with our bodies. There are many steps along the way. And if the reality is that right now, the thought process around the way that you think about your body and feel about your body is negative and negatively impacting your day, then all you can do is take that, that first little step. Like, let's not try to get to self-love, which is like light years away. Let's, let's take the one step to feeling a little more neutral about it. And then the one more step to having fewer negative thoughts during the day, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, if, I, if I'm really specific about this, because it, it all sounds sort of abstract, I realize, but in terms of that work, it would look like, I remember I had a few clients saying they wish they could wear crop tops, for example, during the summer, they love the look of a crop top with a high-waisted jean. And they're like, there's no way I can ever wear this unless I have a flat stomach. And actually changing that narrative to you, you, you should wear what you desire to wear. And you actually don't have to have this contingency around, I can only wear this when I achieve X goal. And, you know, we're simultaneously working on balance and eliminating binges, making sure they're not eating restrictively. And their homework that week might be to go out and buy a crop top and wear it and not feel apologetic about it. And when they actually start to do that, if you do that repeatedly, you can start to actually feel more comfortable in your own skin. It's when you're trying to, let's say, avoid and, and wearing clothes that actually you don't mm -hmm. desire wearing or um, styles that you don't, that you feel like you have to wear because that's what's considered to be flattering for you or will cover things up. That's actually how you develop more discomfort and you don't actually feel comfortable in your skin. That's such a good point. The second that you do it, that you actually wear the crop top and you realize the world doesn't end, 
<laughs> it's nothing bad happens. You're fine. You have a good day. It's good to know that you might have some elevated anxiety the first mm-hmm. time you do that because it's such a habit to not do it and to avoid. But you're right. That will that's typically then the conclusion. So people will repeat this and realize nobody's sort of gawking at me. Nobody cares. And actually I enjoy wearing whatever it is that I thought I couldn't wear. That's how that, that's what I mean by neutrality. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's can be a stop along the way to feel like I am okay as I am. I'm going to wear what I desire. I can think about eliminating these screw these behaviors where we're scrutinizing ourselves. So I talk to a lot of people about when they're in change rooms trying on clothes. It really should take about 10 to 15 seconds to know if something fits you or not. But a lot of people will sort of be there for half an hour, kind of looking at every single fabric pull, and then we'll leave without buying anything. So it's Mm -hmm. the same kind of thing, being able to decide really quickly, this fits me, this doesn't fit me, to stop kind of self-objectifying, you know, turning ourselves into our body parts and focusing in exclusively on these jeans don't fit, my thighs are too big, and instead trying to think about, right, I'm buying these to go to my best friend's birthday party, and I'm so excited to see her. So we're shifting away from turning our, removing our humanity and turning ourselves into sort of the sum of our parts into expanding the sense of like, why am I actually doing this? What's actually mm. important to me? What are my values around this? Can, can be some of those steps along the way to getting to that place of either neutrality or pos- positivity, but certainly acceptance. Yeah, I love that. That's a really tangible example. That was very clear. Thank you. You're welcome. A lot of people might feel like, okay, I'm listening to these things and it isn't me, but it is someone that I care about in my life. What can people do to reach out, maybe help people in their lives or loved ones that might be struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders? It's tricky because I think that one thing that's important to know is sometimes inherently within an eating disorder there can be a sense of minimizing the seriousness of the issue. So there are times when people may really not want to hear the concern or may kind of flat out say there's nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think that means you don't bring it up. I think what's important to know is it's probably not best to bring it up while you're observing something Mm -hmm. that maybe you're recognizing as being disordered can make another person feel very evaluated, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're noticing... I don't know what they're having for lunch and you think they may not be eating enough in that moment to kind of question it can really set up a defensiveness and Mm -hmm. doesn't feel great on the other side to feel like you're actually being watched. Um, So thinking about another time when you're at your best and your loved one is at their best. And I usually suggest actually asking them, are, are they worried? Right. So expressing some concern and say, like, what do you think? Have, have, have you thought about this more? Is there anything you're struggling with? Because sometimes actually, if you open it up to that, someone might articulate some of the feelings that they're having and then seeing if they would be open to, to getting some help. And if they are offering to help them find a professional, going with them to an appointment, helping them look for resources online. And if they're not to let them know that, like at any time, they can come to you and talk to you about it. Mm hmm. If someone had come to me at various points along my journey, I would have responded differently. But even if I wasn't ready to hear it or seek help or I denied the whole thing, I think there still probably would have been value in someone that I really cared about, that I knew had the best intentions in mind for me, planting the seed and saying, hey, I see this and and I'm worried about you or something, or if you need me, like I'm here for you. 
I think that would have stuck with me. It might have taken me six months to do something about it, but I, I think it would have planted an important seed. Like no one is going to get help unless they're ready for it. But I think that if you see something going on in someone that you care about, approaching it with the sense of, I care about you and I see this and I'm here and leaving it there is probably the best thing to do. Of course, everyone's different, but I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people would agree with you. I think that it's very unlikely that you'll cause harm if you are genuinely expressing concern in a way that isn't combative. That's why mm-hmm. I suggest not doing it like specifically when someone might be doing something you're concerned about and to really make it about um, what you're noting, what you're concerned about. So if it's like, you know, you seem not yourself, you seem preoccupied, you seem anxious, I'm worried about you and I'll check in with you in a little while. And you're right. I think for a lot of people, if they're not ready in that moment, that sort of kernel sticks with them. Right. And mm-hmm. eventually, if they do get to a place where they feel more open to at least talking about it, they know who they can go to. Yeah. And I love the way that you said that about I see, I perceive that you're anxious or I perceive that you're preoccupied, not I see that you've lost a lot of weight and that's a problem. Like it's not commenting on the body because I think that that could be quite problematic as well because you never know how someone's going to respond to that. Like they might. Like in my crazy disordered mind, I might have thought, "Oh, they noticed I lost weight. I'm doing a good job." Like- yeah, it could be reinforcing, <laughs> and, and yeah. I think it's 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 um in a lot of ways it doesn't take you anywhere. It can end up being just a couple. It, it becomes a back and forth that doesn't mm-hmm. actually lead you to a useful place. So I think commenting on some of those other things can usually be um, there's less defensiveness about that, and probably if that person, let's say, has lost a lot of weight, they're probably getting those comments from a lot of people anyway, right? Yeah, for sure. Are there any resources that you recommend to your clients or that you could recommend to the listeners if they're seeking to learn more about eating disorders and disordered eating? Absolutely. I think that these resources can be really helpful for people who themselves are having experiences um, with disordered eating, but also for loved ones. You know, I think you, you brought that up as a really important point because it can also be really hard to see a loved one go through this, whether they're getting help or not. Um, so in either case, a really good place to start is NEDIC or the National Eating Disorders Information Center. So they have a really great website. They have a repository of, of practitioners who specialize in eating disorders. They have their own chat line and telephone line that people can call if they're experiencing any kind of difficulties. And there's just really good information, fact sheets about body image, about disordered eating for individuals who are struggling and also for their family members. It's really important if someone's struggling that they reach out to their healthcare team. So right now, you know, things are, are tricky with COVID, and, but, but making sure your, your family doctor and your medical team knows about what's going on because they're the ones who can facilitate things like referrals. If someone does need a more intense level of care, um, your family doctor has to refer you for that. People can self-refer to therapists, to private practice therapists, um, like psychologists or psychotherapists to get help. There's really, really great treatment. I think what's difficult difficult is that it, it can be a challenge to get through. So having really great supports in a person's life can really help that process. 
If people are interested in learning more about you and finding out more about your practice, where do they go to do that? So they can Google me, uh, Dr. Amrita Guy. They'll find my website. I practice at the clinic on DuPont. They also have a website. They're a group practice in Midtown Toronto. We're all offering uh, video and phone sessions right now. So I think like most of my colleagues, we're doing that, but a lot of people are finding it beneficial during this time to get that support. Awesome. And I will link all those resources and also the website in the show notes so that people can access those easily. Perfect. Great. Okay, Dr. Amrita, thank you so much for sharing with us. Your insights are always absolutely wonderful. And I appreciate you sharing your time today. Thanks so much for having me, Casey. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to How Do You Feel? If you're enjoying what you're hearing, Please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Rate and review the podcast. Those ratings and reviews really do go a long way. I appreciate them all so much. Better yet, share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from the messages that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope everyone has a great week. And as always, remember, get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.